Thank you for listening to Voices Unheard Podcast, a podcast production of Physician Just Equity. Amplifying voices to cultivate cultural change. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Melissa Blaker and Dr. Pringle Miller. Welcome to our latest episode of Voices Unheard. We are excited that you are joining us here today. I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Melissa Blaker. Hi, and I'm Dr. Pringle Miller. It's my privilege to introduce our guest today. She is Dr. Imani McElroy. Dr. McElroy is a general surgery resident at Massachusetts General Hospital. She is in the first of two years of the research component of her residency, during which she's completing an MPH and doing outcomes research in trauma and vascular surgery. She plans to pursue specialized training in vascular surgery and ultimately return home to California to care for underserved communities. Welcome to the show, Dr. McElroy. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, let's jump into it. You are a rare Black woman in general surgery residency. We don't have a formal statistic for that, but let me just contribute that a recent stat that was published in Annals of Surgery was that 0.79% of academic surgeons are Black women. So there's a paucity of of numbers of Black women in surgery and surgical subspecialties. So I think I'd like to start the conversation, especially because I'm hoping that some of our listenership are young Black women who aspire to be doctors and potentially aspire to be surgeons, to motivate them and encourage them to, to pursue that path. The question is, what do you think are some of the barriers that exist for for Black women in surgical training? And from, you know, your experiences, some of the fallacies about why there aren't more Black women in surgical training? Yes, absolutely. I think there's two, I think, major contributors to this phenomenon. And one that I call is the fallacy of there aren't enough of us. And then to the failure of true equitable mentorship for underrepresented populations. I think starting with the first one, I, it's, it's a true statement that black women and black people in general are, are underrepresented in medicine. We make up 13% of the U.S.'s population and we're about, I think, less than 5% of the actual workforce. And I'm sure those numbers are much worse within surgery. But I think we've, we've become lazy in our efforts and pursuits of diversity and saying that there just aren't enough of us around to, to pick from. And I think that comes from a part of one is that a lot of places, they choose applications from quote unquote elite institutions and programs. And to get into these programs, a lot of it is numbers based. And, you know, you overlook a lot of highly qualified applic- applicants because they may not meet this criteria. And these numbers are very much based on standardized tests, which have already been proven to negatively affect underrepresented populations. You know, if you have an education system that is built on the same divisiveness and oppression and discrimination against minority groups that disables their ability to adequately achieve their true academic potential and do well in these standardized tests, then they're not going to have the numbers to get into these elite programs. And so you've got a pool of applicants that are at lesser known programs or quote unquote less elite programs that are just as qualified and just as talented. But when you you pick these systems that are known to be historically institutionally racist, you're not going to get at your applicants. 
So I think there needs to be a big push to look elsewhere and stop feeding from the same small group of programs and, and branch out. And I think it's, it's, it affects all populations, not just Black women, but it would affect all the different underrepresented groups. To, and it's, it's in the best interest of medicine to do so. And I think the other thing that you really have to look at is this what I call high quality and equitable mentorship. I think mentorship for certain populations is, is phenomenal. I think mentorship for underrepresented populations and black women and is, is questionable in a lot of ways. And it's not to say that there aren't phenomenal black women who are mentors or there's other women who are mentors. I think there's this idea that you have to fit a certain narrative and a certain persona to be able to be someone who can be mentored. And when you have a system that is built on inequity and the systematic ex exclusion of a group of people, if you take those people and drop them into this setting, they are going to be unprepared to learn, know how to navigate this system. They're fighting a system that's built against them. They don't know how to navigate it. They have not been given the tools to do so. You know, they haven't been nurtured and their curiosity hasn't been cultivated. So how do you expect them to succeed? So if they don't meet, the, meet the, the, these ideas of these go-getters and people who know how to sell themselves, they're not going to be actively pursued by mentors. And so you're, you're losing a lot of potential right there. So I think there needs to be a lot of efforts from people outside of just women and black women to mentor these young surgeons and, um, and really help us reach our potential and understand that we want to be mentored. We just may not know how to ask for it. Yeah, I think you touch on a very key factor there in mentorship. In the past two to three months, I have talked and interviewed many people from leaders within the business world, leadership uh, world and medicine. And I asked them all a question and they all come back to the same answer. And the question is what has contributed to your success in your field? And hands down, every single one of them say mentorship. Somebody came along beside them, they believed in them and they empowered them to do the things that they wanted to do or to achieve their goals. And I don't know that it's the lack of, you know, minorities, women, that their, their lack of drive and ambition that is preventing mentorship, but it's the, it's the, that they don't look like the mentors that are in place and therefore they're not invited to that mentor, mentor, you know, mentory relationship. Um, and I feel like that's where the change has to happen is that people in the field need to be willing to mentor people that don't look like them and may not even act like them and may not have the same end result as they had but to encourage them to live up to their, their greatest potential and encourage them to contribute what they are gifted to, to the, the field of medicine and surgery in these cases. So I think that is a huge missing factor for, for these minority groups. Another thing that kind of goes along with that is that we are seeing that uh, Black women are leaving academia in high numbers. And so I'm curious from your perspective, why do you think that is? And what do you think is something we can do to combat that? Yeah, I, I, I think that is a big question that we're seeing, especially in this, this COVID era. I've seen a lot of big name academicians leave medicine and surgery. A lot of them cite the system. They cite the, the racist uh, behavior, the undertones, they cite the gaslighting. And I think especially for the women, they talk about the proverbial glass ceiling. And I think this other term that I really like is the glass cliff. You know, you're in a situation where you're put into the system that, again, like I said, is structured to exclude us, and you're asked to fix it. 
as the oppressed person, you were asked to fix a system that is actively oppressing you. And you're, for example, you're brought in as a DEI person and you are, you identify key tenets of how to change the culture and structure of your organization and you bring it up to management. And instead of sitting down and really looking internally and acknowledging that these, this is the work you need to do to change, suddenly you become the enemy. You become the rabble rouser and you become the person who is now set up to fail and your team doesn't work with you. And you essentially end up falling off this cliff. And so putting, not only putting the onus on Black women to fix a system that is inherently unjust, we then don't enable them to do so. And then we blame them for failing to do that. And, you know, like I said, that can be translated to any other group that's fighting for equity and justice within their, their institution. But it's, it's, it's very hard and it's toxic to live through that. So I think out of wanting to be able to, one, make true substantial change, and two, out of the need to protect oneself and, and to not live in these states of chronic stress, which we know are toxic and inhumane. Like, you know, there's, we don't need to live with this minority tax. And, you know, there's other avenues and opportunities to help under-resourced and underprivileged communities. And so we're finding a new way to do that on our terms and we're affecting the communities that we want to help in, in a way that we feel is the most efficient and less, in least, or I guess less stressful way. So what are ways that you're seeing some of those changes take place or what are some avenues that you're seeing things become more friendly for minorities, women to find their place in academia? So I, I think the example that I think of most commonly is the the Blackstock twins. They both left their positions and they created their own companies and, and organizations that are doing the work that they want to do and giving them the voice and helping them empower other young Black women physicians, other young minority physicians in in really making true change. And they're no longer handheld or hand-tied and and forced to exist in a system that's actively pulling the rug out from under them. I think that's a great example. I also think it's somewhat sad that that's the answer. You know, the answer is to go outside of the institutions in order to be able to fully express yourself. So Uh, going back to mentorship, a couple actually. One is that I think mentorship has been characteristically framed and predicated on sort of an old protege model where you identify the person that, you know, looks like you, but also is the person you want to become you, you know, the person that you see becoming you. And when you're thinking about a frame of mentorship in that sense, going outside of your gender, going outside of your race and going outside of other identities, you know, makes it really difficult to groom someone in that way because they're always going to be different from you. But I think that that difference is something that we just haven't embraced. And the other piece of the mentorship is, I think, really important, which is that mentorship shouldn't really be about making a person who you're mentoring you. You know, it should really be about helping them be them. And I think that we've really missed the mark on how we see that, because as a medical profession, who's very driven with certain objectives that we know to be true in academia. If somebody doesn't want to do all those things and check all those boxes, then unfortunately they may not be someone who's worthy of mentorship. 
which you know is a very unfortunate circumstance. The other piece that I that I read and hear from colleagues is that women and underrepresented minorities, BIPOC folks, you know, they have so many other responsibilities that are partially also sort of predicated on structural racism, you know, to do the DEI thing, to be the this person. And so, you know, when you're being spread really thin on top of your clinical duties, your research interests and so forth, it makes it really difficult to delegate time specifically to mentorship and sponsorship. So I think that that competes with the underrepresented folks in medicine because they're trying to tread water just to keep up with what's expected of them academically. And then to add more stuff to that is overwhelming. And so unfortunately, sometimes I think mentorship and sponsorship gets left to the bottom of the list, which means that, you know, sometimes it just doesn't get done. But then the converse of that is many people who are underrepresented women and, and BIPOC folk, you know, they understand the importance and they're very motivated to bring people up. So that that's also inspiring. I just want to add one thing to what you were saying. I recently heard this quote, and I think it contributes to what you're saying, Pringle, is that a good teacher protects his pupils from his own influence. And that was from Bruce Lee. And more or less, the concept behind that is the teacher's responsibility is to bring out the highest potential of the pupil, not to make the pupil a little version of them. So I think that that really touches on what you're saying. So we had the good fortune of talking to Dr. Kelly Hussein recently, very active in the equity space and trying to create a different culture in medicine and surgery as a trauma surgeon. And one of the things that really resonated with me was this idea of, you know, being able to bring your authentic self to your workplace and how that has a lot of limitations for people who are underrepresented. It hasn't characteristically been something that's supported. And actually, a lot of us have worked really hard to conform and sort of lose ourselves in the process of that conformity, because if we express ourselves, you know, we get retaliated against. It just doesn't go over well. It's not a welcome component of the environment. And so I'm wondering, you know, I can imagine as a woman of color in surgical residency at an elite program, there's a very fine line that you walk between standing up for yourself, bringing your authentic self to the table and supporting your peers who are similarly sort of burdened by the constraints and the oppression of the environments that we function in. So maybe you could say a few words about about that balance and strategy. Absolutely. I think, I mean, the first thing I think of is is something that I'm sure you are very familiar with, and that's code switching. And, you know, I think that is that is that active part of making yourself conform to this idea of what is the person you're supposed to be at work. And so I think most people listening to this, if you know, have ever had to code switch, they know when you're at work, you have a different tone of voice, you dress a certain way. And when you go home, you switch and <laughs> you get to be yourself and or you talk to your family members. And for those of us with accents or twangs, they come back out and, you know, the slang comes back out and you get to be fully expressive. I think that as I've aged and grown, some of that is I've learned to walk this line out of just putting myself in that box and, and conforming and repressing parts of me is just, it's not healthy. I'm not happy. 
it's it's not comfortable. And I think some of that is a lesson that I had to learn on my own. And some of that is my mom is my inspiration and she has lived her entire life being who she wanted to be no matter what. And so I think especially as I've matured through training, I've I've seen more of those parts of me come out. And I'm happy that they're there. And I think in some ways is some people at first are kind of like, who is this person? And this otherwise very reserved human and you know, who is puts her head down and goes to work all of a sudden is laughing and cracking jokes and, you know, throwing some slang out there and that otherwise people may not have heard because I'm from the West Coast, but that's just who I am. And I think I've seen a fuller, happier version of myself within that. But I also think it is one of those things that you do worry about that you're going to have people judge you and you don't fit this mold. And so it's the the backhanded comments or questions that make you question can you really be your truest self and your truest form and be truly accepted within medicine and surgery? And I think that also adds on to when you add on the layers of microaggressions you receive in the hallways, whether that be from faculty or staff or from patients. When I walk into patient rooms, at least once a week when I was clinical, I was often mistaken for the kitchen staff, whether or not I was in scrubs or or professional attire. And so that makes me want to put that mask back on and and conform. And at the same time, it's like, no, you just have to get used to the fact that I'm a black woman and that, yes, I'm your surgeon. And I think you you do worry about that, especially when, though, when as you move through this process and and dealing with faculty members or staff and learning how to navigate when they say something that is either a microaggression or blatantly offensive, how do you go about educating them or also standing up for yourself in a way that won't affect your ability to get a job later. And I think one of the things that we've done here is we have a community of us. We've learned to rely on each other. We support each other. We, we create an outlet where we can decompress and we can code switch amongst each other and we can be our fullest selves. And I think some of that comes from our group comes from there's a fellow who is African-American and she, she trained within our program. And she, she guided me my first two years here. And now there's three more black women in the program behind me. And so as the, I guess now rising senior of the group, part of my job is to help lead them through this process and help them avoid the missteps that I may have had as a junior and help them learn from those lessons, but also provide them a safe place to be themselves. And I think that's really key. And I think that extends outside of our, our network here at our institution. We extend it to our fellow Harvard institutions and to my colleagues that I know from med school who are on the, on the West Coast, you know, we create these groups that serve as our, our, our protector and our shield. And so some of us are a little bit more outspoken and willing to take those risks so that others don't have to. For me on a personal level, I see it as a way to make sure that my juniors get to train and just be in training and just be surgeons. I'm willing to take on that minority tax and be the more vocal of the group so that they don't have to. And, you know, they get to really fulfill their training potential by not taking on this burden. And I know they still face things. And, but I at least, you know, I guess, I guess it's a little sacrificial, but I think it's for a greater cause. And I truly believe that as more of us learn to be our true authentic selves, inevitably, we will just be accepted for who we are. And we will get to that point where we can just train and just be trainees and not be Black women trainees or LGBTQ trainees or Latinx trainees. We just get to be trainees. Yeah, and I think you touch on another great topic there, and it's this concept of having a group of people 
preferably colleagues that you can support, come together, share stories, share experiences with, encourage each other, kind of be that team that each other need in order to get through the things that are considered difficult. So I think that that is amazing that you guys have done that and you've come together and you've formed that alliance, you know, because very rarely people succeed on their own. You know, they need a tribe of people with them in order for that success to be realized in them. So I commend you guys for doing that and I encourage you to to carry it on, you know, to make sure that it, it carries on even beyond your influence in that group. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. It was a special article entitled Discrimination, Abuse, Harassment, and Burnout in Surgical Residency, and it was authored by Yu Young Hu et al. And it was an important contribution to the literature to raise awareness of mistreatment surgical residents face. The data acquired showed that 65% of women reported gender discrimination and 20% reported sexual harassment, while 52% reported abuse, most commonly from attending surgeons. Should this data concern all healthcare workers, not just those subjected to the maltreatment? And what can the community at large do to help mitigate these structural disparities? 100%. I, I truly believe and stand by a statement I made a few months ago in an article that I wrote that if you have one group that is being oppressed and discriminated against, that serves as a blueprint to oppress and discriminate against any other group. So even though this specific fight may not be specifically about you, the fact that there is injustice towards one group means that at some point you can become an oppressed group. So it's all of our fight to fix this. We are a community. I think this idea of rugged individualism that we, we prioritize in this country specifically has been not only truly seen in the last year with the, the response to the pandemic and our failure to protect our, our people and, and lead them in a way that would have saved probably thousands of lives. I think overall, it's a failure as a society to protect one another. So I truly believe that even if, like I said, if you are not specifically within this group and you know, you're know you not a surgeon, all other healthcare workers should be worried about how people are being treated. And I think, especially for as healthcare workers, if you are discriminating or abusing your power towards a group of individuals, and those individuals you consider colleagues or friends or people you care about, and you treat them that way, I can only imagine how you treat patients from that same population that you have no regard for and you don't know on a personal level. So if you can look me in my face as a black woman and tell me I am only here because I am a diversity hire, and I have, you know, have gotten this far because of the color of my skin and not because of my work ethic and all of the support I have received to get here, then I very much worry what you say to your Black patients who come in and are suffer suffering under the burden of all the social determinants of health of an unjust and unequitable system. And you, to me, that feels like you're going to blame them for their circumstance instead of being understanding because you have a personal relationship with me and you still see me as less than. So someone that you don't know, I, I can only imagine the biases that you may have. And, you know, I, so I think 
I, I try and carry that in all of my interactions and try and, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do and, you know, and understand that all of us carry biases that are negative in some way. And so really understanding and taking a hard look in the mirror is the first step in, in trying to sit with that discomfort of understanding your biases and where they're coming from and trying to, to actively work against them is how we begin to really change the, the structural disparities. And then from there, I think, you know, on an institutional level, I think people can get so focused on the self again and look at like, you know, it's, you have to focus on yourself in some ways, but to look at the institution of medicine and surgery, we have to look at the hard and ugly truths of what medicine and the surgery has done from a standpoint of racism and discrimination and actively worked to tear those systems down and rebuild a system that is truly just and equitable. Because I think there's, there's that idea of, and I think it's a very common quote, especially now when people say the system's not broken, it's working as it is expected to. And I think that is true. So it is our job to tear down that system and restructure it. And one of my favorite authors, Eddie Glaude Jr., in his book, Begin Again, that he released the, this last year, he says we have to face those hard truths and really look them in the mirror and choose to move forward and begin again. We cannot go back to normal from here. And so I think that's how you mitigate these structural disparities is you choose to those hard truths, you accept them and you fight them. Well, I'm inspired by you and I really look forward to all the things that you're going to do in the future just getting back to the manuscript, the paper that Dr. Blaker had mentioned, one of the statistics is also that 16.6% of the respondents cited racial discrimination. And I think that it's important that we talked about sort of the paucity of non-white surgical residents, but also that this particular study was unique in that the number of surgical residents that were actually captured as respondents in some way was significant. So 99.3% of surgical residents were captured in this study, which is, I think, quite amazing, 7,409 residents. I just want to hang out on this thought for a second. I think it's also interesting. There was another study called the Exploration of Myths, Barriers, and Strategies for Improving Diversity Among STS Members. And basically what they did, it was a voluntary study. So the study we just looked at was somewhat of a mandated study that trainees had to answer after the ABSITE exam. Uh, this was a voluntary study that all the STS members were prompted to complete and only a small proportion, I think six to 8% actually filled it out. But one of the questions they were asked is if issues of diversity really affected cardiothoracic surgery specifically. And some of the most common answers, and I'm just going to read one of the quotes. It says, I do not believe barriers exist. This myth of the necessity of diversity and inclusiveness is political correctness on steroids. We need to worry about training out well-trained residents. So they don't believe that, you know, the things that we're talking about are actually problems within, you know, specifically this study, cardiothoracic surgery, that they're just myths that we are talking about. So I just think it's interesting how the two, you know, the perception or the, this is serving attendings and how do they perceive, you know, these things versus asking residents who are in the system, are they experiencing these things? There's a, there's a dichotomy. So for those of you who don't know what the ABSITE is, it's the American Board of Surgery in Training Exam. 
and the survey that we're talking about that focused on responses by surgical residents was attached to their annual exam. So kind of getting back to this theme of, you know, we all need to sort of see ourselves as stakeholders in creating a better culture. And I think that we still see a lot of fractionation, maybe call it tribalism within the culture that sort of doesn't support the idea that we're all in this together. And if something bad is happening to someone else, it's really also happening to us. We may not necessarily completely feel it in the same way, but we need to start feeling it in the same way to be able to propel action that's more favorable. And the other thing that I think we need to recognize is that, and Dr. McElroy said this about if you're treating someone in your workspace, that's somebody that you can't relate to poorly, that translates probably to the way that you might take care of uh, patients who you can't relate to. And I think that we have to really emphasize that there is data to suggest that when there's faulty, unethical, unprofessional behaviors uh, that happen in the workplace, it translates and trickles down to the patient care that we deliver. And I think we'll probably be seeing more of that in the future But we all, at the very least, should be able to agree that our mission is to provide the best patient care that we can. And and part of that relies on treating each other well and taking care of each other in the workplace, especially now with all of the COVID burdens making work so much more stressful and people being so much more taxed and burnt out. So I just want to say on a personal note that I also had a very strong mother who sort of, you know, danced to the to her own tune. And I really loved her for that. And I reflect back on that now as a woman who adapted a lot of that sort of thought and ideology, because that's the, the world in which I was raised in. But what I wasn't really aware of at the time, as much as it was self-empowering, was sort of the tension between being a self-empowered person in a workspace that wasn't really equipped for a person that looked like me to be a self-empowered person. And so while I wouldn't have it any other way, there was no pep talk, you know, that I had to say, you might need to modulate yourself or code switch yourself when you enter into this workspace. And so since we're sort of heading towards the end of our conversation, which I very much appreciate, And I think you've sort of addressed some of these things already. But the the question is, what's your vision for the future of surgical training, whether it's in in general surgery or surgical subspecialties as it relates to the recruitment and retention of BIPOC residents? And so sort of like, you know, what comes next? I don't know if there's anything additional to what you've already shared as initiatives and action items that you want to bring up now as we close? I think the, the, the thing I'll say is my future goal when talking about recruiting and retaining BIPOC residents, meaning Black and Indigenous and people of color, I think one, there's the key is yes, bringing them in, but two is creating environments that they can thrive in and not just survive in. This idea of being able to train and be able to train in your full self without these added layers of minority stress and tax. 
And we've talked extensively about how to do that, but I, I leave the listeners with a question that I think is very pertinent for the times is that we have just passed the one year anniversary of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And we are rapidly approaching the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And as we are currently, you know, at the time of recording this, the, the trial is beginning for Derek Chauvin and, um, a year ago, basically, we took to the streets in America and around the world, and we proclaimed that the time was now for change. And we got our institutions, we got our Fortune 500 companies and big advertisers to say that we need to change this system. And one year later, I challenge everybody to ask themselves, what have you done to do those things that you proclaimed a year ago on a personal level, on an interpersonal level, at your workplace, on an institutional level, how have you actually taken those steps? And if you haven't, what are you going to do about it? Well, I pre- I appreciate that. And I, I think that, again, it comes down to ownership and prioritizing this as a value that we can't really continue to sort of brush under the rug. And I guess I feel a little bit saddened by recently feeling as though the people that this matters to is not a broad enough audience to affect meaningful change. And so I'm trying to sort of reframe my own thought processes and positivity and motivate others who aren't BIPOC individuals and other women who are not underrepresented in medicine for their ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, or disability to see this really as a problem. Because we we see certain things, we know those particular events like those murders are problematic, but we don't necessarily externalize those things as more all-encompassing behaviors and thought processes that impact our world in general. We can easily compartmentalize those particular events as, well, that's that, but that doesn't happen in this space. And, you, you know, you might have had that experience and that was really wrong, but that doesn't happen frequently type thing. So the gaslighting and the marginalizing of the frequency and the pervasiveness of these things still needs to be disrupted, I think, for more people to fall in line with reform and breaking a system or changing a system that is fundamentally flawed. One thing that we actually want to do is engage our listeners more in the conversations that we're having. And so when you go to the website, www.voicesofmedicine.com, and you access this podcast, below it is a comment section. And I would really love for people to give their feedback on this conversation. And on this particular question that Pringle brings up, and I'll just rephrase it, but there are in this area of diversity, equity, inclusion, and medicine, and today we're talking about race and gender and the disparities they bring. What is it if you are not engaged or you're not fully on board with identifying this as an issue and helping to resolve the problem? What is it that kind of 
makes you question if this is a real problem that we need to engage in and what is it that holds you back from en- engaging in the conversation and and I the reason I point you to the webpage and not to social media is because I want it to be a safe place I want people to feel free to really express kind of their thoughts and their opinions because I believe that answering this question will help to answer one of the questions and the gap between us saying there is a clearly identified problem that needs clearly identified answers, but we're not getting there in our current system. So if you are not on board with this concept of this being a real issue in medicine, and if you kind of lean more towards the annals of thoracic surgery article that I cited and saying, well, I don't really think this is an issue. I think we need to focus on just creating good surgeons. What is it that keeps you or what is it that puts you in that category? And I would just really like to hear some thoughtful expressions on that. So along those lines, what you hear often is that we function in a true meritocracy And if people are equipped to excel, they will. And, you know, this relates back to something that Dr. McElroy said earlier about the qualifiers for getting invited to the club. If the inclusion criteria are such that they already eliminate talent and aren't really designed to capture the talent that is out there because of other factors that would preclude the same sort of excellence or that preclude excellence that's expressed in other ways, we really can't say that we are functioning in a meritocracy as much as we like to think that that might be the case. Any other final thoughts? Amani, I want to say thank you for joining us today and giving us a privilege of interviewing you. I think you have some amazingly polished insights on these topics and this discussion. And I think that you add valuable lessons that we all can learn. I just want to recap some of those things. And one thing we talked about is mentorship, this concept of if you find yourself in a minority class, people probably aren't going to come to you and ask you to be a mentee, at least not today. But I want to encourage people to go and seek mentors. And you know, you may get told no multiple times, but find somebody who actually will sit down with you and will help you to gain the skills that you need to get where you want to go. And the second thing that I just want to remind listeners that we heard today is this concept of finding a group of peers that you can come together and you can be your authentic self with. You can encourage and motivate and share with each other your struggles and your victories and what you're going through in order to help get each other to the goal that you have set. So thank you for sharing those insights with us. And thank you for giving us this time that we're able to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe and visit our website at www.physicianjustequity.com, where you can access our resource library and share who you want us to interview next. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at at EquityDocs. We look forward to meeting again so we can amplify voices to cultivate cultural change.